Part 2, Chapter 7, Section 81 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, The History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 7, Discourses of Jesus in the Fourth Gospel. Section 81, The Discourses of Jesus, John Chapters 5 through 12. In the fifth chapter of John, a long discourse of Jesus is connected with a cure wrought by him on the Sabbath, verses 19 through 47. The mode in which Jesus at verse 17 defends his activity on the Sabbath is worthy of notice, as distinguished from that adopted by him in the earlier Gospels. These ascribe to him, in such cases, three arguments. The example of David, who ate the shoe bread, the precedent of the sabbatical labors of the priests in the temple, quoted also in John chapter 7 verse 23, Matthew chapter 12 verse 3 and following and parallel passages, and the course pursued with respect to an ox, sheep, or ass that falls into the pit, Matthew chapter 12 verse 11 and parallel passages or is led out to watering on the Sabbath. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. All which arguments are entirely in the practical spirit that characterizes the popular teaching of Jesus. The fourth evangelist, on the contrary, makes him argue from the uninterrupted activity of God, and reminds us by the expression which he puts into the mouth of Jesus, My Father worketh hitherto of a principle in the Alexandrian metaphysics, viz. God never ceases to act. A metaphysical proposition more likely to be familiar to the author of the fourth gospel than to Jesus. In the synoptical gospels, miracles of healing on the Sabbath are followed up by declarations respecting the nature and design of the sabbatical institution, a species of instruction of which the people were greatly in need. But in the present passage, a digression is immediately made to the main theme of the gospel, the person of Christ and his relation to the Father. The perpetual recurrence of this theme in the fourth gospel has led its adversaries, not without reason, to accuse it of a tendency purely theoretic, and directed to the glorification of Jesus. In the matter of the succeeding discourse, there is nothing to create a difficulty, nothing that Jesus might not have spoken, for it treats, with the strictest coherence, of things which the Jews expected of the Messiah, or which Jesus attributed to himself, according to the synoptists also, as, for instance, the raising of the dead, and the office of judging the world. But this consistency in the matter only heightens the difficulty connected with the form and phraseology in which it is expressed. For the discourse, especially its latter half, from verse 31, is full of the closest analogies with the first epistle of John, and with the passages in the gospel in which either the author speaks, or John the Baptist. One means of explaining the former resemblance is to suppose that the evangelist formed his style by closely imitating that of Jesus. That this is possible is not to be disputed, 
but it is equally certain that it could proceed only from a mind destitute of originality and self-confidence a character which the fourth evangelist in no wise exhibits further as in all the other gospels jesus speaks in a thoroughly different tone and style it would follow if he really spoke as he is represented to have done by john that the manner attributed to him by the synoptists is fictitious now that this manner did not originate with the evangelists is plain from the fact that each of them is so little master of his matter neither could the bulk of the discourses have been the work of tradition not only because they have a highly original cast but because they bear the impress of the alleged time and locality on the contrary the fourth evangelist by the ease with which he disposes his materials awakens the suspicion that they are of his own production and some of his favorite ideas and phrases such as the father showeth the son all that himself doeth and those already quoted seem to have sprung from an hellenistic source rather than from palestine but the chief point in the argument is that in this gospel john the baptist speaks as we have seen in precisely the same strain as the author of the gospels and his jesus it cannot be supposed that not only the evangelist but the baptist whose public career was prior to that of jesus and whose character was strongly marked modeled his expressions with verbal minuteness on those of jesus hence only two cases are possible either the baptist determined the style of jesus and the evangelist who indeed appears to have been the baptist's disciple or the evangelist determined the style of the baptist and jesus the former alternative will be rejected by the orthodox on the ground of the higher nature that dwelt in christ and we are equally disinclined to adopt it for the reason that jesus even though he may have been excited to activity by the baptist yet appears as a character essentially distinct from him and original and for the still more weighty consideration that the style of the evangelist is much too feeble for the rude baptist too mystical for his practical mind there remains then but the latter alternative namely that the evangelist has given his own style both to jesus and to the baptist an explanation in itself more natural than the former and supported by a multitude of examples from all kinds of historical writers if however the evangelist is thus responsible for the form of this discourse it is still more possible that the matter may have belonged to jesus for we cannot produce to what extent this is the case and we have already had proof that the evangelist on suitable opportunities very freely presents his own reflections in the form of a discourse from jesus in chapter six jesus represents himself or rather his father verse twenty seven and following as the giver of the spiritual manna this is analogous to the jewish idea above quoted that the second goel like the first would provide manna and to the invitation of wisdom in the proverbs chapter nine verse five come 
eat of my bread but the succeeding declaration that he is himself the bread of life that cometh down from heaven verses thirty three and thirty five appears to find its true analogy only in the idea of philo that the divine word is that which nourishes the soul from verse fifty one the difficulty becomes still greater jesus proceeds to represent his flesh as the bread from heaven which he will give for the life of the world and to eat the flesh of the son of man and to drink his blood he pronounces to be the only means of attaining eternal life the similarity of these expressions to the words which the synoptists and paul attribute to jesus at the institution of the lord's supper led the older commentators generally to understand this passage as having reference to the sacramental supper ultimately to be appointed by jesus the chief objection to this interpretation is that before the institution of the supper such an allusion would be totally unintelligible still the discourse might have some sense however erroneous for the hearers as indeed it had according to the narrator's statement that the impossibility of being understood is not in the fourth gospel so shunned by jesus that that circumstance alone would suffice to render this interpretation improbable it is certainly supported by the analogy between the expressions in the discourse and the words associated with the institution of the supper and this analogy has wrung from one of our recent critics the admission that even if jesus himself in uttering the above expressions did not refer to the supper the evangelist in choosing and conveying this discourse of jesus might have had that institution in his mind and might have supposed that jesus here gave a premonition of its import in that case however he could scarcely have abstained from modifying the language of jesus so that if the choice of the expression eat the flesh etc can only be adequately explained on the supposition of a reference to the lord's supper we owe it without doubt to the evangelist alone having once said apparently in accordance with alexandrian ideas that jesus had described himself as the bread of life how could he fail to be reminded of the bread in which the christian community was partaken of as the body of christ together with a beverage as his blood he would the more gladly seize the opportunity of making jesus institute the supper prophetically as it were because as we shall hereafter see he knew nothing definite of its historical institution by jesus the discourse above considered also bears the form of a dialogue and it exhibits strikingly the type of dialogue which especially belongs to the fourth gospel that namely in which language intended spiritually is understood carnally in the first place verse thirty four the jews as the woman of samaria in relation to the water suppose that by the bread which cometh down from heaven jesus means some material food and entreat him evermore to supply them with such such a misapprehension was certainly natural but one would have thought that the jews 
before they carried the subject farther, would have indignantly protested against the assertion of Jesus, verse 32, that Moses had not given them heavenly bread. When Jesus proceeds to call himself the bread from heaven, the Jews in the synagogue at Capernaum murmur that he, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother they knew, would arrogate to himself a descent from heaven. Verse 41. A reflection which the synoptists with more probability attribute to the people of Nazareth, the native city of Jesus, and to which they assign a more natural cause. That the Jews should not understand, verse 53, how Jesus could give them his flesh to eat is very conceivable. And for that reason, as we have observed, it is the less so that Jesus should express himself thus unintelligibly. Neither is it surprising that this hard saying should cause many disciples to fall away from him, nor easy to perceive how Jesus could, in the first instance, himself give reason for the succession, and then, on its occurrence, feel so much displeasure as is implied in verse 61 and 67. It is indeed said that Jesus wished to sift his disciples, to remove from his society the superficial believers, the earthly-minded, whom he could not trust. But the measure which he here adopted was one calculated to alienate from him even his best and most intelligent followers. For it is certain that the twelve, who on other occasions knew not what was meant by the leaven of the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 16 verse 7, or by the opposition between what goes into the mouth and what comes out of it, Matthew chapter 15 verse 15, would not understand the present discourse, and the words of eternal life for the sake of which they remained with him, verse 68, were assuredly not the words of this sixth chapter. The further we read in the fourth gospel, the more striking is the repetition of the same ideas and expressions. The discourses of Jesus during the Feast of Tabernacles, chapters 7 and 8, are, as Luca has remarked, mere repetitions and amplifications of the oppositions previously presented, especially in chapter 5, of the coming, speaking, and acting of Jesus and of God. Chapter 7, verse 17, verse 28 and following, chapter 8, verse 28 and following, verses 38, 40, and 42, compare with chapter 5, verses 30 and 43, and chapter 6, verse 38, of being from above and from beneath, chapter 8, verse 23, compare with chapter 3, verse 31, of bearing witness of one's self and receiving witness from God, chapter 8, verses 13 through 19, compare with chapter 5, verses 31 through 37, of light and darkness, chapter 8, verse 12, compare chapter 3, verse 10 and following, also chapter 12, verse 35 and following, of true and false judgment, chapter 8, verse 15 and following, compare with chapter 5, verse 30. All that is new in these chapters is quickly repeated, as the mention of the departure of Jesus 
whither the Jews cannot follow him. Chapter 7, verse 33 and following, chapter 8, verse 21, compare with chapter 13, verse 33, chapter 14, verse 2 and following, and chapter 16, verse 16 and following. A declaration, to which are attached, in the first two instances, very improbable misapprehensions or perversions on the part of the Jews, who, although Jesus had said, I go unto him that sent me, are represented as imagining, at one time, that he proposed journeying to the dispersed among the Gentiles, at another, that he meditated suicide. How often, again, in this chapter, are repeated the asseverations that he seeks not his own honor, but the honor of the Father. Chapter 7, verse 17 and following, chapter 8, verse 50 and 54. That the Jews neither know whence he came, nor the Father who sent him. Chapter 7, verse 28, chapter 8, verses 14, 19 and 54. That whosoever believeth in him shall have eternal life, shall not see death, while whosoever believeth not must die in his sins, having no share in eternal life. Chapter 8, verses 21, 24, and 51, compare with chapter 3, verse 36, and chapter 6, verse 40. The ninth chapter, consisting chiefly of the deliberations of the Sanhedrim with the man born blind, whom Jesus had restored to sight, has of course the form of conversation but as jesus is less on the scene than heretofore there is not the usual amount of artificial contrast in its stead however there is as we shall presently find another evidence of artistic design in the narrator the tenth chapter commences with the well-known discourse on the good shepherd a discourse which has been incorrectly called a parable. Even the briefest among the other parables of Jesus, such as that of the leaven and of the mustard seed, contain the outline of a history that develops itself, having a commencement, progress, and conclusion. Here, on the contrary, there is no historical development. Even the particulars that have an historical character are stated generally as things that are wont to happen, not as things that once happened, and they are left without further limitation. Moreover, the door usurps the place of the shepherd, which is at first the principal image, so that we have here not a parable, but an allegory. Therefore, this passage, at least, and we shall find no other, for the similitude of the vine, chapter 15, comes, as Luca confesses, under the same category as the one in question, furnishes no argument against the allegation by which recent critics have justified their suspicions as to the authenticity of the fourth gospel, namely, that this author seems ignorant of the parabolic mode of teaching, which, according to the other evangelists, was habitual with Jesus. It does not, however, appear totally unknown to the fourth evangelist that Jesus was fond of teaching by parables, for he attempts to give examples of this method, both in chapters 10 and 15. 
the first of which he expressly styles as a parable but it is obvious that the parabolic form was not accordant with his taste and that he was too deficient in the faculty of depicting external things to abstain from the intermixture of reflections whence the parable in his hand became an allegory the discourses of jesus at the feast of tabernacles extend to chapter 10 verse 18 from verse 25 the evangelist professes to record sayings which were uttered by jesus three months later at the feast of dedication when on this occasion the jews desire from him a distinct declaration whether he be the messiah his immediate reply is that he has already told them this sufficiently and he repeats his appeal to the testimony of the father as given in the works done by jesus in his name as in verse thirty six hereupon he observes that his unbelieving interrogators are not of his sheep whence he reverts to the allegory of the shepherd which he had abandoned and repeats part of it word for word but jesus had not recently abandoned this allegory for since its delivery three months are supposed to have elapsed and it is certain that in the interim much must have been spoken done and experienced by jesus and would thrust this figurative discourse into the background of his memory so that he would be very unlikely to recur it and in no case would he be able to repeat it word for word he who had just quitted the allegory was the evangelist to whom three months had not intervened between the indicting of the first half of this chapter and that of the second he wrote at once what according to the statement was chronologically separated by a wide interval and hence the allegory of the shepherd might well leave so distinct an echo in his memory though not in that of jesus if any think that they can solve this difficulty by putting only the verbal similarity of the latter discourse to the earlier one to the account of the evangelist such an opinion cannot be interdicted to them for others this instance in connection with the rest will be a positive proof that the discourses of jesus in the fourth gospel are to a great extent the free compositions of the evangelist the same conclusion is to be drawn from the discourse with which the fourth evangelist represents jesus as closing his public ministry chapter twelve verses forty four through fifty this discourse is entirely composed of reminiscences out of previous chapters and as paulus expresses it is a mere echo of some of the principal apothems of jesus occurring in the former part of the gospel one cannot easily consent to let the ministry of jesus close with a discourse so little original and the majority of recent commentators are of opinion that it is the intention of the evangelist here to give us a mere epitome of the teaching of jesus according to our view also the evangelist is the real speaker but we must contend that his introductory words jesus cried and said are intended to imply that what follows is an actual harangue from the lips of jesus this commentators will not admit 
and they can appeal, not without a show of reason, to the statement of the evangelist, verse 36, that Jesus withdrew himself from the public eye, and to his ensuing observations on the obstinate unbelief of the Jews, in which he seems to put a period to the public career of Jesus. Whence, it would be contrary to his plan to make Jesus again step forward to deliver a valedictory discourse. I will not, with the older expositors, oppose to these arguments the supposition that Jesus, after his withdrawal, returned to pronounce these words in the ears of the Jews. But I hold fast to the proposition that by the introduction above quoted, the evangelist can only have intended to announce an actual harangue. It is said, indeed, that the aorist in ekraxi and aipe has the signification of the pluperfect, and that we have here a recapitulation of the previous discourses of Jesus, notwithstanding which the Jews had not given him credence. But to give this retrospective signification, there ought to be a corresponding indication in the words themselves, or in the context, whereas this is far less the case than, for example, in John chapter 18, verse 24. Hence, the most probable view of the question is this. John had indeed intended to close the narrative of the public ministry of Jesus at verse 36, but his concluding observations verse 37 and following, with the categories of faith and unbelief, reminded him of discourses which he had already recorded, but he could not resist the temptation of making Jesus recapitulate them with additional emphasis on a parting harangue. End of section 81